a very deep defensive set for the Badgers. Three safeties go back inside the 10-yard line. I said Nick Toon, but they put Jared Abradaris back there instead. Three-man rush. Cousins. On the last play of regulation, chucks it to the end zone. Caught. Michigan State's caught it on a rebound. Tuck. Hold on. It is just short of the end zone. You know, sometimes this is really easy. Sometimes it seems like people are lined up down the street to talk to me. (laughs) And other times you have a week like we've had this week where it seems like there isn't a person in the world who wants to talk to us. (laughs) And I, I, you know, sometimes we're real honest and open about some of the things that happen in the day-to-day workings of this show. And I have to tell everyone... I guess I don't have to, but I I think it's interesting. This has been the hardest week in the history of the sportscasters to book a guest. And I don't know what's going on out there. I I think 30 people who have been on the show before have said said no to me this week. And 30 people who haven't been on the show before said no to me this week. Uh, But luckily, we're good to people. We're kind. We say thank you. We have manners. Mind our P's and Q's. And there's two incredible people who, at the drop of a hat, are willing to bail us out and provide us with incredible interviews. And those people today are Lee Jenkins and Damon Hack. So right off the top, I want to say thank you to Lee and Damon for being available. And I don't want it to sound like we booked Lee and Damon because there's just no one else in the world to book. (laughs) That's not the case at all. Uh, Having Lee and Damon on the show today, honestly, is a thrill. I think my point just is more that, you know, sometimes we don't like to bother people like Lee and Damon because they've been so great to us that it's, it's like, you know, how much do they owe us? I mean, they owe us nothing. And I guess the the broader point is sometimes how often should we ask them? Because I know a guy like Lee Jenkins is too nice to say no. Right. So I don't want anyone to think that I feel like Lee and Damon is a second-rate show. I think we have a fantastic show for you today. It's episode number 48. It's October 25th, 2011. And part of the reason why booking was so hard for episode 48 is because we're getting ready for episode 50. So some of the people that easily could have been a part of today's show were saving for the next couple of weeks because we want it to be really special as we get to episode 49 and 50. So let me mention a few things. First, episode 47. Oh, one step before that. My name is Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. Don, Hello. How's it going? This is the Sportscasters, episode 48, October 25th, 2011. We're in Buffalo, New York. Uh, I'd like to mention we have Lee Jenkins and Damon Hack on the show today. Last week, in episode 47, we were lucky enough to have Pablo S. Torre from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. We also had Matt Wright from viewfrommyseats.com and Pro Hockey Talk at NBC Sports. And we also had Jesse Golan 
from thefanmanifesto.com. So if you're interested in checking out episode 47, last week's show, check it out at our website, www.sports-casters.com. A couple things to set up the future, and I'll mention it again later, but next week, episode 49, we are guest-rich, I guess we could say. Yeah, absolutely. We have former Buffalo Bills star Andre Reid on the show. We have Grantland.com hockey writer Katie Baker making her second appearance on the show to talk some pucks. And we have Jane Levy, the guest editor of the Best American Sports Writing Series 2011 on the show the, to kind of close off one of the three books that we've been working on this month. So next week, Andre Reid, Katie Baker, Jane Levy. Episode 50 which is in two weeks from now, we are going to have Mike Chirico from Monday Night Football. That's awesome. Doesn't get much cooler than that. One last thing before we get going with three things. I was on a podcast this week. Uh, Apparently, there was another guy who was having a lot of trouble booking a show (laughs) this week, and uh, his name is Kevin McGuire, and he's a national football columnist for The Examiner. And he has his own website, no2minutewarning.com. It's the number two uh, as a reference to the fact that college football doesn't have a two-minute warning. And I was on his podcast. It's about an hour long. It was a lot of fun. I, I appreciated being asked to be on the show, and I'd love it if you checked it out. But we have a bunch to do today. We have Lee Jenkins, as I said. We have Five on Fantasy including a very great call that we made last week, which we'll be sure to pat our backs for. We also have Damon Hack. We have pick four. But before we can do any of that, we have three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. My first thing this week, a lot of times uh, a lot of the football off the field stuff is somewhat negative, but this is what maybe felt like a negative but turned into a positive for one player. Jerome Harrison as we reported last week when we were talking about the, the moves in football, was traded for Ronnie Brown. But the trade was turned over for uh, failing his physical. Jerome Harrison, Harrison. did. Yep. Um, at the physical, he complained of having some headaches lately, and the, one of the team doctors, uh, presumably the Eagles team doctor, ordered an MRI for him, which he got, and they discovered a brain tumor. So... With, without the, as Adam Schefter tweeted, without the trade, Jerome Harrison doesn't get physical. Without physical, doctors don't find braid tumor. Trade may have saved his life. So he probably wasn't overly excited to get traded, or maybe he was. I don't know what his situation is there in, Detro- uh, in Detroit. But it's amazing the way things happen sometimes. I mean, this never would have been found probably. And, you know, a lot of times with cancer, the key to healing it, and we're not oncologists or anything like that but <laughs> just finding it early oftentimes you know discovering it early is is a blessing right and it's a kind of interesting side note here 
I don't know if you've seen 60 Minutes this week, but the biographer of Steve Jobs was on. And interestingly enough, when Steve Jobs was initially diagnosed with cancer, he was thought to have one of the worst cancers, pancreatic, uh, pancreatic, which is generally a death sentence. Right. And when he had his initial biopsy, there was crying in the room because they had discovered that it was a 5% version of pancreatic cancer that when caught enough can be treated with surgery and generally healed. But Steve Jobs decided to wait seven months yeah, he went like to a hol- have that surgery. A holistic route. He tried to kind of ignore it, go yeah. try to change his diet. Yeah. And it's interesting that I think uh, the guy who was doing the interview said, how can a guy so smart make such a bad decision? Because by the time they had done the surgery seven months later, they had noticed that the cancer had spread to some of the cells that were around, which wasn't the case initially. So that may have cost him his life. Yeah. You know, and I bring it up only because I would assume that Jerome Harrison wouldn't make a similar mistake that no, I, this would, I would be, I know uh, he had the surgery for it. Right. So this is uh, one of those cases where it's just a blessing. Absolutely. And who would have seen that? Yeah, I mean, Javid Best being injury prone may have saved Jerome Harrison's life in a weird roundabout kind of way. And it was also Javid Best having head problems as well. Right. Because it was a concussion, yeah, concussion, a concussion. injury. Yep. My first thing today is about Rob Gronkowski, who is a tight end in the National Football League from Buffalo, New York. Yep. Plays for the New England Patriots. Probably doesn't need much of a introduction he leads all nfl tight ends and touchdown catches this season and the patriots were on a bye last week and there's some interesting pictures that surfaced on twitter of rob gronkowski essentially without a shirt on he's got a nice build don <laughs> uh it's uh if you took his head and you put my face on there it'd be similar the build uh oh, you know right. really defined uh chest area cut, yeah, yeah real cut v yeah just really toned and he's there with a uh, famous, famous actress, uh, Bibi Jones. Bibi Jones. Yeah, uh, who is a porn star. Yeah, good for actually. her. Actually. And she's wearing nothing but a Rob Gronkowski Patriots jersey. I'm going to research this for the show. Bibi Jones. Bibi Jones. Images. Oh, yep, there she is. Yeah. <laughs> wearing <laughs> nothing but a Patriots jersey. And a few tweets were exchanged. She said that she was uh, hanging out with her favorite football player. And, uh, um, you know, good for Rob, I guess. Uh, there, there's uh, You can find this on Larry Brown Sports, which I guess is a blog. <laughs> Never heard of it. Or th- Google th- Images. Just type in B.B. Right. Jones Gronkowski. But you might not want to do that at work because it won't, uh, won't take long to get some inappropriate pictures of B.B. Jones. They ask a question, did they have sex? Which is a very interesting question. Did Who, who asked the question? That blog? Uh, yes, I guess. And the question was answered by Jimmy Trena, who is a former guest of ours. Yeah, okay. He found out that she said, disappointingly, I wish something happened, but nothing did. Do you believe that? Uh, I don't know. 
I don't I don't know what the uh, rule of thumb is when it comes to taking the word of porn stars. Like, what would she have to lose by saying he did? I guess she went on a Boston radio show Monday morning and said she and Patriots tight end Rob Gronkowski did not have sex this weekend, though she wanted to. Interesting. What um, would it matter if he did? Is he a married guy? Uh, I'm assuming no. he's single. He's probably a young. He's young. Looking. I don't. I, I'm seeing his two hands right now, and there isn't a ring on either <laughs> hand. I, I don't know if that necessarily answers the question, but right, he, right. Uh, uh, he's he's called Gronk. That's his nickname, Gronk. Okay, and uh, good for Gronk. Yeah, I guess so. She's more covered up in all the pictures than he is, though. So right, maybe she's telling the truth. Maybe. My second thing this week is uh, Tim Tebow, another guy that's. Well put together if we want to talk about physicality of other men here. Uh, we don't want to talk about No, that. I didn't think so. Uh, he played terribly, yet gets his first win in the intangible ways that only he can. At one point of the game, actually I have it written down, uh, with five minutes and 23 seconds left in the game, he had up to that point been four of 14 for 40 yards passing and completed zero of 10 third down conversions. So just an awful, awful game. I believe they were down 15 to nothing at the point. So, so he finished the game uh, 13 of 27 with 161 yards, two TDs, and 65 yards rushing. You read that stat line, and it's like, all right, he managed the game well, and he played a good game, won the game. But, I mean, what happened? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Miss Caster... Not to be confused with Mrs. Caster. Okay. Uh, Miss Caster started a uh, thing at work where you pick every game. Okay. You know? And she had a really frustrating first week, and one of the losses she had was this game because the Dolphins couldn't win a game against the Broncos that they led 15 to nothing with two minutes and 43 seconds left on the clock. Do you think they realized that uh – oh, no, we might blow it and win a game? Like, did Miami just freak out and be like, oh, crap, we're going to win? It was bizarre. The Saints played at night this week, so I spent the whole Sunday basically watching Red Zone. And that was the ugliest one of, because Seahawks and Browns wasn't very cute either. Either was Jacksonville, Baltimore. It was full of ugly games. Yeah, but that was one of the uglier games of the day. And there was just no action. And it seems like Tim Tebow has a way of bailing himself out. Huh? Because that could have been just such a disaster, you know. Finally, he gets his chance, goes to Miami. It's not a great team. Guys like Michael Fabiano in the fantasy world are saying that there's only three or four quarterbacks that he'd start over him. Right. I mean, you know, what do you do with him, though? I mean, he won the game, but if you watch the game, he was missing wide-open players not accurate. by a lot. Yeah, he had Decker open wide for open. a long touchdown. Yep. He missed it by five yards. You know... Can you can accuracy be learned? There was a great debate about this between uh, Jackson, Carter, and Johnson on ESPN coverage before Monday Night Football. Okay, and basically they were saying, can you go eight games without Chris Carter touching the ball and win? Not that the Broncos have a Chris Carter type; they don't have Brandon Marshall there anymore. Right. But the point was, can you win without your receivers? Because it seems like at this point in his career, not to say he couldn't turn it around, I don't know. I like Tebow, and I'm rooting for Tebow. I'm not a hater by any means. Right. He's a good kid. I, ho- I hope the best for him. Right. Uh, but right now, he can't get the ball 
consistently to his wide receivers. No, Brandon Lloyd had to be watching that game just thinking his lucky stars at that point. I mean, but then again, he has something about him that <clears throat> I don't want to see. Right. I mean, strange. They had to recover an onside kick that they needed a lot I to mean, happen. He didn't have anything to do with the onside kick, but I mean, is it a matter of he's just such a good, like people want to play for him? Or? Well, they didn't want to play for him the first 58 minutes yeah, of the game. Right, right. Right? I, I mean, I, this It'll be feels, interesting to see what what happens when they play a team that's not 0-6 or whatever. And this is was. certainly not something you can count on every week. You I can't would, count on me and down 15 to nothing with two minutes and 43 seconds left every week and plan on winning. I, I would hope I, – I imagine if you're Tim Tebow, what you're telling yourself too is I'm not going to play a worse 58 minutes than that the rest of the season either. So – I don't know. If you're Denver, I guess you kind of got what you wanted, and you got to win. So I guess you just – I think it's still a wait-and-see type process. He didn't go out there. What's his name? Uh, from Minnesota. Went out and played a really impressive yeah, first game. Ponder. Christian Ponder, yeah. Yep. Played a very impressive first game. And in a similar situation, having a wide receiver open way down the field, he put it right – dropped it right in right. to Michael Jenkins on the first play of the game there. So, I mean, if you're Minnesota, I think you watch that one game, and it's a it's a – a good team they're playing against too. Maybe not the best secondary, but it's a big stage that he got put into. And you know, he made a couple of mistakes picking on Charles Woodson. You know, Woodson yeah. picked him off a couple of times, and he's going to learn that when Charles Woodson's on the field, you look elsewhere. But great, great debut for Christian Ponder for sure. But yeah, so I mean, if you're Minnesota, you're excited. If you're Denver, like I said, you got your win, but you got it. You got to be. And you know, we said last week. I think it was last week on the show. The regime that's in place in Denver is not the regime that drafted Tim no, it's Tebow. Not. It's the, not. the leash for him is going to be short there. They they don't. I don't think. I don't get the impression that LA and Fox believe in Tim Tebow. They were obviously backed into a corner here with how bad Kyle Orton had played, and there's no reason not to put Tim Tebow in. No, at this yeah, point. your season's over. You might as well see right and let him try to work it out. Do you think if – I don't know what the record is off the top of my head, but uh, if they – obviously they're going to miss the playoffs. If they only win one or two more games the rest of the year with Tebow, are they done with them at the end of the year? Probably. That's it? It's the – Yeah. I think there's too many other potential first-round quarterbacks this next year, year right, or, uh, in the draft in April that they would probably focus in on. Uh, a real quick Jeopardy-style question for you, Don. <laughs> Uh-oh. Naughty Nanny 3. Amateur action. She's so cute. Three babysitters. Two. Uh, what are movies? BB Jones has started. <laughs> Correct. Yes. <laughs> Very good. All right. My second thing is the world of gambling. Uh, there is a man out there who was in Vegas on September twelfth, and the Cardinals. He had watched the Cardinals lose six to five in Pittsburgh, and at the time, the Braves were in a twelfth inning game against Florida, a game that they eventually would lose. But the guy walked up to the teller at the in the sports book at the MGM Grand, one of the biggest and nicest casinos on the strip down there, a great buffet. Yeah. And he made two bets of $250 each. His first bet was that the Cardinals would win the NL championship at 500 to 1. This was at what point of the season? This was September but, I mean, they had just lost that 12th. night. In what they had lost and were not quite in a playoff spot. Okay. They so were still before the playoffs They started. were still attempting to chase down the Braves. Gotcha. Who okay. had, at this point, a nice lead. probably a five, right. five-ish game lead. Right. He has already cashed his ticket 500 to 1 
$250 ticket that paid out $125,000. Good for him. And he also bet $250 at 999-1 to that the Cardinals would win the World Series. That pays $250,000, which at this point, he's in a great position to hedge. You know what I mean? Because he's – and especially if it gets to a game seven, he's going to win money on that ticket one way or another. Yeah. You know? So what a story, huh? And I wonder – I have no idea what – and there's pictures of the tickets. You can go to deadspin.com and you can see them. This isn't a hoax. And I'm sure that there's plenty of upset people at the MGM Grand (laughs) Sportsbook. And a lot of times you don't see 991 to one type lines anymore no because of you know who ruined this was the 1999 st louis rams okay yeah because they were such a huge underdog that year it's, it's all kurt warner's fault though. and someone ended up a group of people ended up cashing a few huge tickets and that's brought these outrageous to one lines down usually like when the super bowl odds come out the worst is about 250 to one okay you know, uh, but right before a season, right. right before a season, this was well into the season, right? I guess but, they uh, had, I guess they figured with the lead the Braves had, they had to overcome that, then win all the. They needed series. this is what he needed. He needed a Braves collapse, and then he needed the Cardinals to beat the Phillies and the Brewers. Yeah, amazing. Good for him. My last thing this week is just the craziness in general that is college football. Uh, we're going to take some of the blame for jinxing a couple of undefeated teams because we talked about how there was going to be probably nine undefeated teams at the end of the year, at least potentially OU being one of those teams that lost, uh, sadly for you, and Wisconsin, who we played in the opener, lost on the Hail Mary, but also in the top 25, Illinois, number 23, lost to Purdue, number 15, West Virginia, lost to Syracuse, uh, number 22, Georgia Tech, lost to Miami. So just a really wild, wild week for college football. You know what it felt like? It felt like the college football season started this week. You know, because up to this point, it was a bad non-conference schedule this year. Right. There wasn't a lot of great non-conference games. There's been a lot of blowouts. Uh, up to this point, Oklahoma, LSU, Alabama, Oklahoma State had all been just blowing everyone out. And... It kind of feels like with Oklahoma being upset, Wisconsin being upset, that this is the start of what we're more used to with the college football season. Teams getting picked off week by week by week and then having it somehow work out to some degree. But it's still a long way away from there not being BCS chaos. Clemson is still undefeated in the ACC. Uh LSU. LSU and Alabama, one of those teams. Kansas State and Oklahoma State in the Big 12 are still undefeated. There's still quite a few undefeated teams. This, this season isn't over by any means. So now at this point with OU's season for all intents and purposes practically. It's on life support. Right. There's a, I would say at this point there's about a 9% chance Oklahoma plays for the national championship. But all the teams in front – well, all but one of the teams in front of them would have to lose a game. The thing that is in Oklahoma's court – is they played a very good non-conference schedule, playing Florida State and two other ranked teams. The only bad team they played in non-conference was Ball State. And they have two games left against Oklahoma undefeated State. teams that are high in the BCS, Oklahoma State and Kansas State. 
but they're about they're they're a long shot. They're about nine percent. They don't they no longer control their own destiny by any means. Okay, say at this point of this or at the end of the season, you probably you probably cross them off. LSU has one, or Oklahoma still only has one loss. They beat Oklahoma State. They beat all the teams you mentioned. LSU is the only undefeated team left. Well, no, let's say let's say, say LSU is the only undefeated team left with Boise State. Is there any way Oklahoma? They could. They could still probably do they it. They could. Because Oklahoma is going to get so much. They're going to be so much higher in the computers. Right. Oklahoma only fell to nine in the BCS. Right. You know, so. What a nightmare for Boise State in that conference. I don't know what Boise State can do. Yeah, because like you said last week, no, why would you want to play Boise State and you know, I in a non-conference game? It's, it's probably less likely, but I, I bet there's still a slight chance that if the only three undefeated teams left were Clemson, Oklahoma, and or there was two undefeated teams, Clemson and LSU, and then and Oklahoma was the one-loss team, they, they might be able to sneak in still. I mean, I don't know because it's complicated and it's going to be right. – voting is going to be important and where teams finish in the coaches' poll and the Harris poll is going to be important. Okay, say there's still five undefeated teams when Oklahoma plays Oklahoma State. Do you, do you root for Oklahoma still or do you root for the chaos of – Oh, I root for the chaos. I, I, look at it. Oklahoma, we might even be overstating it at 9%. Oklahoma F themselves this weekend. Right. They lost a game that they were 30-point favorites in. At home, where they had won 39 straight games, the longest streak in the country. And there was, okay, they had three starters out in defense, which isn't cool when you're playing a team that throws 100 times. <laughs> uh, they, Dominic Whaley, who we talked a lot about on the show last week, yep. ended up with the flu, couldn't play. Landry Jones had five touchdown passes. It wasn't enough. Look, at they're done. Let's just cross them off for now. Let's just forget them. They're not going to win the national championship this so year. So OU, Oklahoma State, you're rooting for Oklahoma State to just I want there to be as many chaos. undefeated teams as possible so that we can I, I agree. potentially I have a change. I here. think that'd be awesome. Because one thing that would still be alive right now for Oklahoma fans is a chance to win the Big 12. And presumably in any playoff, the Big 12 would have an automatic bid. I didn't think so, yeah. So the season for Oklahoma wouldn't have to be over. They the, these games against this game against Kansas State this week. Look at this week in college football is all going to be about waiting for next week because next week is going to be the biggest game in the history of college football since the last biggest game in the history of college <laughs> football when uh, Ohio State and Michigan played about five years ago in November when they were both undefeated and number one and number two because on November fifth it's going to be LSU versus Alabama. So this week is a, a lot going to be about waiting for that game. Right. And the best game on the schedule this week is probably Oklahoma and Kansas State. But that game got crushed by Oklahoma's loss. Yeah. yeah. If there was a playoff and the Big 12 had an automatic bid, that would be a huge game this weekend. So that's kind of an example of where people who are on the side of the argument that a playoff would hurt the regular season doesn't work. It would help the regular season this week because that would still be a huge game. It's still a huge game for Kansas State, I suppose. Right, right. But I don't know that Kansas State has enough in them to make it to the championship anyway. But. In addition to that, uh, speaking of people losing, Dylan Baxter, USC, kicked out for academic reasons. Yeah, He was a big, big, big recruit too, Don. I mean, he was a five-star guy that everyone wanted, and it hasn't worked out, obviously. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> speaking of not working out, my third thing today uh, – no NFL teams <laughs> like the segue. decided to bring their popcorn 
to Terrell Owens' workout today. Uh, <laughs> Terrell Owens went through a televised workout at Calabasas High School in California where he was hoping to show NFL teams that he's ready for game action. He chose not to do it in his driveway this time. No, he did not do it in oh, his okay, driveway. Okay. Just six months after her surgery on a torn left ACL, nobody showed up for the workout, according to NFL Network's Lindsey Soto, who is there. But always, uh, always rambunctious and... <laughs> looking at the glass half full, Drew Rosenhaus yeah. said that they, he will send the team the video to oh, all 32 team. teams. So no big deal. Hey, no big deal. No one showed up. They were just waiting for my first video package. Right there, yeah. So uh, Owen said after the workout, he felt good. This is actually shorter than what I've been doing the last couple weeks. So I feel good. That's a quote from Owens. He also said, this is what I've been training for. I'm not worried about what the naysayers is saying. I'm, wasting my time i think what i showed today speaks for itself so don you happen to be a fan of a team who suffered some injuries at wide receiver uh they have had to start players like naming roosevelt in the last few <laughs> yeah. weeks is terrell owens a player that you would at all be interested in seeing the buffalo bills go down that street one more time with no and I'm not a bit, I'm a, I'm more a numbers and stats guy than I am chemistry guy, but there's something about this team. I mean, in addition to the fact that they're winning, there's something about this Bills team that's finally likable. Um, they're all kind of have that underdog mentality. There's a lot of undrafted or late draft picks. I don't, I don't think they need this. Uh, I think they're starting to see more and more that the team is going to be about Fred Jackson and I, I just don't see how T.O. fits in with so the sideshow. Is there a team where you feel like T.O. fits in? It's got to be a team that's going to compete for a Super Bowl, or so they would think. Because why would you bring him on? To, like, why would you, why would Denver could use receivers for sure? But why would they bring him in there? No point. Right. Um, so I just brought up the standings. Saint Looking Lewis. at it real quick. No point. No, I'm thinking maybe the 49ers. Uh, they have Crabtree there. Beyond that. Well, they do have Braylon Edwards too. I don't, I don't know where he fits, honestly. Uh, former sportscaster Stiff Heath Evans, who thought he was <laughs> thought he was too big for this show, uh, said that he still thinks he's a couple months away from being NFL ready. So this might be a, just a big charade, anyway. Just to keep his name in the media. But just- I kind of just had a giggle at the fact that uh, Terrell Owens said, "Hey NFL, come watch me," and all thirty-two teams said. No. Even if you knew he was perfectly healthy as far as as much as someone could be from an ACL surgery. I wouldn't want him anywhere near my team. Is there any team that you can think of either? I mean... 49ers is a good call. Uh, Jim Harbaugh is a tough guy. He's probably not a guy you want to cross. Maybe Houston? He's the kind of guy who could probably stand up to Owens, Harbaugh. So 49ers is a good call. Uh, Maybe Tennessee? I mean, they're a three-and-three team, only one point out of their division. They look terrible this week. What's wrong with Chris Johnson? I mean, not to get on something totally different, but holy cow. I Ten saw carries his, for 21 yards. It's I not saw, good. <laughs> I saw his stat today, and I don't know the validity of it, but it sounds about right, that he's getting paid about $18,000 a yard this year. Oh. Yeah, so good for him. The Chargers are maybe a team that could use a guy opposite Vincent Jackson. I mean, maybe the, the Jets showed that, you know, 
gave Vincent Jackson the Revis treatment this week, and he only had one catch. Yeah. So maybe they could use a guy opposite him. The Raiders are a team that take that kind of risk, I guess. They've been there with they Randy the Moss. Yeah. yeah. So maybe there's somewhere for him, but look at well, What's the amount of time he has? He's a free agent, so is there a free agent signing deadline? There must be. Uh, yeah, but I think he's weeks from that. Yeah, he can't like walk on during the playoffs or anything. Huh? I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know the what that how that works either. All right, so that's three things for today. From here, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Lee Jenkins. Then we're going to do five on fantasy, and then we're going to be back to talk about more of these NFL-type issues with Damon Hack from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com, and we're going to close it all off with pick four. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Lee Jenkins. <laughs> Our next guest is a native of San Diego, California, and graduated from Vanderbilt University. In 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and SI.com as a senior writer, where he covers basketball, football, and the sport closest to his heart, baseball. He has been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association, the Football Writers Association of America, and the College Press Association, and was named New York's Best Sports Writer by the Village Voice. He's making his fifth appearance on the Sportscaster and, is, and has been the most professional, kind, and accommodating guest we've ever had. A warm Sportscaster's welcome to the great Lee Jenkins. How are you doing today, Lee? Good. Thanks, Steve. How are you? Doing very good. Uh, very, very uh, happy to be speaking with you today. There's a little line in there about how you had said in your... I guess it's kind of a bio that they wrote up that I got some of this information from Sports Illustrated that baseball is a sport closest to your heart. And I guess it's a good week to talk to a guy who says that because here we are in an off day in between what I would categorize as a surprisingly very good World Series. Let's just start there and just general impressions. Has this World Series surprised you as much as it surprised me yeah, with the I mean, quality? Yeah, a lot of just wacky stuff about this postseason. I mean, the number one thing is probably, uh, you know, we talk so much about the emphasis on starting pitching and how that's going to dictate the playoffs in baseball. You know, and here we are with two teams where starting pitching is probably the, you know, the thing they hang their hat on the least. You know, they're two teams that hit the ball a lot, have great bullpens. Uh, you know, I'm surprised that the Cardinals are here, not surprised that the Rangers are here. If anything, really surprised that the, that the Cardinals have made it as good of a series as it is. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, I just think really for baseball, the last six weeks have been really important. You know, it wasn't a great regular season. It looked as though it was going to be, you know, a bit of an anticlimactic playoffs even. And then the way that last night tr unfolded leading into these playoffs, which really haven't disappointed either. Um, it's been a good, it's been a really good month, month and a half of the game. And, you know, I think what's most positive about this for baseball is it's been a very great month and a half, and there was no Red Sox. Uh, the Yankees only made a brief appearance, and the Phillies were also upset. So I think it's been positive that the people who just tune in for the World Series, I think that they've been probably really greeted with something exciting from two teams that I know my partner, who's just a casual baseball fan, when we did the show last week, was like, 
yeah, it's probably going to take a seven gamer to get me to tune in. And mm. he called me after game three and said, I'm loving this. You know what I mean? So it's, it's yeah, been I that. I feel like you can relate to it a little. I mean, to me, if you're not from that Northeast corridor, or you don't root for, you know, the big dog in your sport, you can kind of relate, I feel like, to these teams a little better. You can look at them and say, okay, you know, my favorite team maybe could do this. You know, they could make these changes and they could kind of mirror what the Rangers have done, what John Daniels has done. If they're a little smarter, a little more committed. Um, and the same thing with the Cardinals. I mean, these aren't, you know, in these situations you often hear about teams saying, or baseball will say, well, this shows that we have parity and everybody has a chance. And that's garbage. I mean, you still have kind of a bottom third um, that has no shot. These two teams, to me, represent more of that middle third. And it's true. Base, in baseball, you can be in that, in that middle third, that 10 to 20 in the payroll rankings, um, and you've got a real shot at it and winning the whole thing. If you have you know, a smart GM and a good manager and you get some luck, you can win the whole thing. So I think that's, that, to me, is kind of what's encouraging about this. And it's last year, too. I mean, the Giants are come from a huge market, um, but they still to me represent that, that next level down from the teams you mentioned, the Red Sox, Yankees, and Phillies. I mean, I, I think it's a blast not having those teams involved. I know Agreed. it doesn't really work for the TV networks, um, but to me, I can relate to the teams a lot better. Let's talk about some specific things. I, I can't remember exactly who it was, but somebody on Twitter thought that Tony La Russa had one of the all-time worst nights as a manager in the history of the World Series. I think he, co- he called it 2001 Brenly Bad, and I think it was Keith Law. I could be wrong about that, but it was, it was a prominent baseball writer. Uh, w- what were your thoughts on last night? Do you buy the whole miscommunication with the bullpen thing? Are you willing to take LaRusso's comments on that at face value? What was your feeling on the running two times with Pujols at bat? And it was just a, a really, if, if not terrible night for Tony LaRusso, certainly a very strange one. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a bad night. You know, it's a bad night. You, you, you don't know really who's taking the bullet for who, if LaRusso's taking it for his pitching coach. Uh, Lilliquist, you know, if there was miscommunication on his end or miscommunication on LaRusso's end. I mean, one thing I'll say is that, you know, managers have complained or have said that the ballpark in Arlington is a, is a difficult place. Um, it's one of the few stadiums where they can't see the bullpen. You know, so they do rely a lot on the phone. It's, it's one of the few places where something like that could have happened. And it's semi-plausible, and it's one of those stories we'll probably never know, or Tony LaRusso will save it for his autobiography. <laughs> uh, but look, that's you know that's a team that really has a you know they protect Tony LaRusso, they protect each other. I almost think that whole episode is one of the reasons Albert Pujols should stay there. They protect each other um, when things go wrong, and so no one's going to throw anybody else under the bus. Um, but really, in that situation, Tony LaRusso said, look, he's the manager. And, and I don't understand why, when the wrong guy comes out, um, you can't just suck it up and, and send him back. I've seen that happen in baseball and stall. It looks a little weird. But those matchups were just so preposterously wrong. Um, the, the, yeah, I mean, look, you, you might lose the World Series. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, for Mike Napoli to get that kind of matchup at that phase of the game, Whoever was responsible for the gaffe, it's just an enormous gaffe, and it, it, it can't ever happen. So, you know, it's somebody like LaRusa, you know, who's made his whole reputation off just being smarter than everybody else, it's, it's profoundly embarrassing. I mean, it might go down as one of the worst moments of his career. And, you know, LaRusa, for as great as he's been, has had some bad World Series moments. I mean, 
The 1990 A's team absolutely should have won the World Series. They didn't even win a game in that World Series. They got swept by the Cardinals. Uh, last night, obviously, wasn't a great night. So he's had some bad World Series moments. Do you think that hurts his legacy, or do you think having the at least two World Series is enough to consider him to be, I don't know, one of the top... I, I don't know. Where, where do you rank him historically? I mean, very, I mean, very high. I mean, I, yeah, he's, he's got two. A third would, would be huge. Um, but this team... You know, I, what's interesting about him is his best teams... If you, the Oakland team was dominant, and they and they lost. The '88 team lost. The Dodgers was dominant too. So he yep. will have lost a couple World Series with his better teams. Um, this team I group kind of with that '06 team, where right. they probably didn't fully deserve it. They you know, they weren't an elite team. Um, he kind of willed them through, I think. And you know, to me, this season they're they're pretty much playing with house money, and so is he. I mean, they've done a incredible job he's done an incredible job just to get there um but look when you look back at this era in st louis when they had albert Pujols and a ton of talent roll through there you're looking at only one championship it could have easily been uh it could easily been three two or three um so that is something that you know that will um i'm sure torment him but really more than anything it's just those are the kind of mistakes that Tony LaRusso doesn't make. I mean, we're talking about the master of the pitching change. The person who loves the pitching change and the double switch and everything else more than anybody he loves to make moves. It's just kind of uh, poetic, I guess, if you're a Rangers fan, that those moves in this case would, would come back to haunt him. Um, and really, that's the communication. I mean, you just wonder, you know, I don't know how much you've been around Tony LaRusso, but... Uh, you know, it's it's almost like a college football program there. You know, where where the you know college football, the coach is just uh, this sort of presence, this unquestioned authority. And Larusse is a little bit like that in St. Louis. Um, Pujols, by extension, would be like the star quarterback. Mm. And, and you just wonder if his relationships with his employees, with his pitching coach, look was or his bullpen coach, I should say, weren't. Um, you know, there wasn't enough of a interchange of ideas to allow him to know that Lynn wasn't going to pitch. I mean, that's the whole thing. If, if the media and everybody knew that Lynn wasn't available, then why was Lynn even loosening? You know, wouldn't the, wouldn't the right. coach know that from his manager? Yeah, it's very, very bizarre. Let's talk about Pujols for a second. Obviously, he had a historic night in this World Series. Five hits, three home runs. We all know about what a great game he had. He hasn't had a hit in any of the other games. Yeah. Uh, so another kind of bizarre thing in this bizarre World Series. Uh, I guess what I want to know about Pujols, and you kind of mentioned it earlier, you think he should stay. Uh, what has the last part of this season, we, we kind of, if we look back, he started the season with some people questioning whether he was still Albert Pujols. He kind of surged through that about midway through the season. He's led his team to another World Series. He's had a he had a great NLCS. He had a historic night in the World Series. Do you see him as being someone who, I know you mentioned you think he should stay. Is that what you think he does? And if he doesn't, who are some of the teams that you could see Albert Pujols playing for? Because it seems like that's a real small amount of teams. Yeah, it is. It is a small amount of teams because I think Prince Fielder is going to see too is just that those Northeastern teams we talk about have their first baseman. I mean, they already paid, all of them paid a fortune for the first baseman they have, Teixeira in New York, Adrian Gonzalez in Boston, and Howard, Ryan Howard yep. in Philadelphia. Um, so you're right, the pool shrinks a little bit. Um, you know, I mean, look, with all this news coming out about the Cubs, you wonder if, if they're going to be a team 
uh, that gets involved, or if or if Theo Epstein, you know, Theo Epstein's first comments with the Cubs, he he really harped on scouting and player development, and he was just burned big time by the free agent market last year in Boston. So maybe they're a little more reluctant. You know, I think Glauber Pools is the kind of guy who's going to go to the highest bidder. Um, I, I don't think he's going to allow a lot of sentiment in, in, into his into his thinking. I don't know him too well. I mean, I, I shouldn't say I, I really don't know him personally very well at all. Um, but I've been around him um, a fair amount. He's 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 I mean, he's got some similarities with Barry Bonds personality-wise. He's, he's he can be really prickly um, with the media. He doesn't love a ton of attention on him. And in the same way that Bonds was sort of embraced in San Francisco and wasn't embraced elsewhere, uh, I think Pujols could be like that in St. Louis. I think he, some of his foibles are tolerated there and masked. Um, and that's why I think it's probably the perfect place for him. If he goes to a place like Chicago or somewhere else, he's going to be judged on now going forward and how many wins he delivers in St. Louis. He's built this reservoir of goodwill that will always be able to draw on. So if he is sort of reaching that kind of final stage of his career, um, and Bob Pools definitely has a few more great years left in him, um, but if he kind of does, you know, start to slow a little bit, there's just so much more forgiveness in a place like St. Louis. There's more forgiveness built in anyway just because of the way the market is. But then there's also the extra forgiveness because of what he's accomplished. Uh, so you just get way more leash. For him, I think it's a way more pleasant um, way to kind of round out your career. If he goes to a place like Chicago, he's expected to be the savior. Right. And as you mentioned, I mean, the stats are still great, but they're not savior stats. I mean, we're not talking about somebody who is, I think, single-handedly uh, going to rescue a franchise anymore. He's still an elite player, a great player, um, but I don't know if he's quite at that level he was a few years ago. You look at the numbers and, you know, they have dipped. As a guy who writes unbelievable feature stories, uh, and I should mention you had one recently about Brandon Jennings and Sports Illustrated. It's fantastic. If Thanks. if the, the the Rangers win this World Series, what's the big feature story? Is it the is it the Josh Hamilton recovery from drugs, the World Series champion? Is it the Nolan Ryan buying his former team and leading them to their first championship? Is it Mike Napoli? Is it something I missed? As a feature writer, hmm. if they finish this, where do you, what would you be most interested in really getting down to the meat of as the big story from the championship Texas Rangers? Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good question. I mean, those stories you mentioned have kind of. Um, kind of been done a little bit, you know, I mean, I mean or a, a lot in Hamilton's case, uh, you know, you have the Nolan Ryan story of kind of just changing the way they pitch and their pitching philosophy. Napoli's a good story for right now, but it feels a little more like a guy who's gotten hot. I would probably go with Ron Washington. Um, oh, yeah. Th- there's just something about just his dugout demeanor, the way he is when he makes pitching changes. You know, a lot of the way I kind of view feature stories is I often don't know a whole lot about the subject when I go in. I just have this kind of basic feeling like he seems interesting or he seems cool. Uh, you know, a lot of my stories come from that. I'll say, you know, this guy just, I don't know, I think there's something there. He seems interesting and sometimes you're wrong and, you know, and sometimes you're right. But with Ron Washington, you just, you watch the way he is in the dugout. It's just unlike any other manager. Um, and I think that his, the way he, the way he is with his players and their interplay, you know, the other night he's 
he's slapping Holland around like a little curl. Uh, you know, when he went out to make the pitching change, he like he like sat there for two minutes. It seemed like on the mound, you know, as if he didn't know what he wanted to do. I think he's just in this era of sabermetrics and everything being planned out, knowing what you're going to do, and the Tony Larusa kind of overmanaging at times. He just seems to do it from the gut. Um, and the fact that it, it could yield a, a world championship, I think, makes him a pretty compelling <laughs> character. And then you have the drugs with him, too, and, and his whole past. Uh, but, look, he's just a manager unlike any we've really seen before. You know what he kind of reminds me of? He kind of reminds me of a guy who could be Tracy Morgan's father. <laughs> <laughs> like, he just <laughs> – like, when you watch him and he's like – they got the big hit yesterday and he's, like, running in place. And he, he kind of – like, he, it's almost like a guy you want to go and laugh with. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, a lot of what feature writing is. I mean, a lot of it is when I pick who I want to profile, I think who would I want to, you know, have an hour with. Because, you know, usually if you're going to do a big piece on a guy, you usually get 45 minutes, an hour, something like that. You get maybe a lunch or a breakfast. So that's kind of what I think. Who would be able in that time um, to make you laugh, to tell you stories that are going to be interesting, to be able to kind of reveal something of themselves? And then when you talk to people around them, you know, those people are, are psyched to talk about them. And, you know, a lot of times I just kind of go in those directions. And when I see Ron Washington, I think, you know, if you had an hour with him, how could that not be fun and interesting and reveal something? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. If I had a choice between an hour with him and an hour with Nolan Ryan, tough call. Uh, but I think right now I'd go with Ron Washington. The Sportscasters are here with Lee Jenkins. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Uh, the very first time you were on the show... Uh, we talked basketball, and I just mentioned you did the piece on Brandon Jennings, and obviously yeah. we don't have a lot of time to really get into this, but I just want to ask you, do you think we'll have NBA basketball this year? And if we don't, why? What, what is it? What's the main guts of this? What, why are they canceling weeks of the season? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, okay, to answer the first part, and I'm no expert on this. I'm not kind of covering the day in and day out negotiations. I still, my gut still tells me we will have basketball. Um, the way they're just canceling these games so incrementally, two weeks at a time, and the fact that the main sticking point, okay, what you've got is you've got this $4 billion pie, right, which is the NBA. And they've got to think about how to split that. And the players used to get 57% of that pie. Now they're probably, they want to give up, they want to take now 52% or 52.5%. The owners want them more at like 50 or 49%. All we're talking about are three percentage points. And, and, and that's where you, know, you have one side of your brain that tells you it's three percentage points. Get over it. You know, find right. a middle ground and make a deal. Uh, but to the players and the owners, those percentage points represent so much money that they're not giving them up easily. And then you have all these other systems issues. So even if you can work a compromise on that big piece of the pie, which is called the BRI. You have all these other issues like the mid-level exception and you know wh whether you're going to impose really strict penalties for the luxury teams that go over the luxury tax or not allow them to go over the luxury tax. Th you know, that's all involved with this, too. So it, it's very complex. Um, but to me, it, it, you know, it, it's been such a roller coaster because there's one day with the federal mediator where it seems like they're going to get a deal done and teams are calling coaches and telling them to get ready. And then the next day, talks break off. And, and the NBA just can't afford this because when it comes down to it, you get to a point like this, I was kind of siding with the players before and, and thinking they were getting a raw deal. And I think all people who monitor this stuff at this point, 
just get to hate everybody and hate every side and think they're all wrong. And really, they should have been, see, they should have hashed this out and been working with this kind of urgency back in the spring or, or further back. They've known this was coming for two years. They experienced one of their best seasons in recent memory last year. And, and to not find a way is just sh so ignorant and short-sighted. I mean, these owners are going to, you know, they're going to strip away at the value of their own franchises if the league loses popularity. And then the players... You know, will strip away at the value of their product, and it's just—it's going to hurt everybody, and that's what always happens in these, you know, in these labor disputes. But look, this is twice on David Stern's watch in the past 12 years, and so to me, it, it really strips away at his legacy as well. I mean, we used to think of him as, you know, as one of the best commissioners in the history of sports. You can't do that. You can't think of a guy like that if he has two stoppages on his watch in 12 years. Right. The Sportscasters here with Lee Jenkins from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. I'm going to let you go, but I want to ask you one last thing. I always like to ask you this, and that's what do we have to look forward to? What are you working on? What's coming up? What can you kind of give us a, a small look into the future with? Well, actually, uh, actually, I'm doing a little bit of college football, a little bit of baseball. I'm kind of bouncing around right now, um, but... Hey, I love that Ron Washington story. If I can get a sign, that'd be pretty. Uh, that'd be a pretty good one. So, you know, really hoping that we get some NBA back too, because I just think, you know, even though right now I don't think it's missed on the sports calendar, it's like when you kind of get into February and March, right. it's sort of when we need. I think, you know, in the sporting, I know yeah, the NBA has a lot of people who who really dislike it, um, but I think it's hard to kind of go through that time of year and go through the playoffs without it. It just sort of, I think, buoys the whole sports scene. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate having me, man. Talk to you soon. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Pushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. It's, it's Thank you to the great Lee Jenkins for yeah, his fifth appearance on the Sportscasters. One of, as I mentioned in the open, one of the kindest, most professional, smartest writers in all of the business. All right. A little bit of redemption for Don and I this week with Five on Fantasy. Uh we had some hits and misses last week, and we're going to talk about what was good and what was bad. But uh, before we get to that, I think the number one story in fantasy this week is injuries. Uh, week seven of the NFL was dominated by injuries. Yeah, particularly the running back. And it seemed like also it was the step back we've been waiting for in fantasy football in terms of just points in points. general, yeah. Uh, I think maybe it heated up a little bit in the later games. Obviously, Peterson and Murray had great games late, and some other guys late. Burris had the three touchdowns late. Breeze. Uh, Breeze in the late game and all, all the, the Saints. All the Saints, yeah. Uh, but I think, especially in the 1 o'clock games, there were some real ugly fantasy performances. And I know that there was a lot of the uh, experts, people beyond us, uh, who do this really struggled this week with their calls. It, it, it was a tough week, uh, fantasy-wise, to be right. And part of that was because so many players got injured. And Don has a pretty long list of just 
players to name off that are injured. Yeah, and these are just guys we thought of off the top of our head. So if we missed any, we apologize. But uh, Ernest Graham, injured reserve, uh, done for this injury. season. Tim Hightower, who's having kind of a nice ACL. season, done for the year. Tolbert and Matthews in their game, both left for a small amount of Matthews time. Matthews was a thumb injury. Yeah, both returned, but uh, they both were banged up. Ingram. Uh, heel. Bruce Teal. A little banged up. Uh, Darren McFadden, uh, he got banged Foot up. Foot injury. Early which is in the scary game. for him. Which, yeah, that's true. Uh, it was early in the game, and I guess it probably killed a lot of fantasy owners' game that week. But it comes at a good time for him, and he'll be on a bye this week. Joseph well, Adai, same thing. Joe Adai. Uh, I've ended, ended up being questionable. They decided to start him. He played two plays and then stood there the rest of the night. Beanie Wells is another guy that left the game. And I'm not sure what his status is going to be for this week. Willis McGahee looks like he might miss He's a week He's going to miss time, two. yep. Uh, Santana Moss is going to, I mean. Five to seven weeks. Yeah, so tons and tons of. I have, on my, we talked before, we both have a lot of fantasy teams. And I have almost all of these guys on at least one of my team. And I miraculously still won just based on the fact that the other team probably had almost all of these guys too because there were just so many. And there's still injuries. some running backs. Garrett uh, Blunt has missed the last few weeks. Yep. Uh, Felix Jones is injured, obviously opening the door for DeMarco Murray. So Javid Best. Javid Best is going to miss at least another week with his concussion. Oh, that's another one we didn't. Oh, no, I did say Ernest Graham. Yeah, but yeah. Garrett Blunt, Ernest Graham. Yep. Uh, you know, and Javid Best is another guy who probably won't play this week because then he can sit through the bye and rest that concussion even more. So the, there's tons of injuries right now. So whenever there's tons of injuries, I guess the question becomes, well, where do you go to find help? And I think that it's at the point of the season right now where the best place to go, honestly, is trades. Yeah. Because there's not a whole lot left out there. Yeah. I mean, to jump ahead a little bit to a different segment we'll talk about during fantasy demarco murray was a guy last week that i picked up in every league you already had him in a few leagues um i just don't think even with all these injuries i'm not sure there's a guy out there that's gonna be a demarco murray maybe someone like uh ryan terrain if he's still out there but if hey who would you rather have rest of the way terrain or halo i have no idea i don't know either uh, with mike shanahan i have no idea could be either of those guys. i have halo on a bench still so i guess i won't be dropping him at this point now uh but i heard a rumor there's they might pick up one of their guys off a practice squad too i don't, I don't know the guy's name but you never know. If Back to Shanahan. a three-headed monster there. Right. Do you know who the third-string running back in is, is in Tampa? Because I don't. You know what I mean? So I, That's another team that I heard might be picking someone up off their practice squad. Right. That so they I, might have a guy there. You know what this is a really good day for uh, is our lads. Uh, our, oh, with their, uh, with their depth chart. Because yeah. it seems like uh, everyone has uh, depth chart concerns right now. And if you look at Tampa Bay and their running back situation right now, Blunt could be ready. He could. Uh, he yeah. might come back. Uh, but if he doesn't, it's Craig Lumpkin. I have heard of him. Okay. But I've only heard of him because I play fantasy football. So that's the next guy up as yeah, the so name I mean, of the Feinstein book. So unless you happen to own Graham and Blunt, are you really going to run to the waiver wire to pick up Craig Lumpkin? No. And they're not even playing this week, so... Yeah, and, you know, I've been burned a few times this year with running into the waiver wire to pick up a guy. Like, Kendall Hunter was a big pickup this week, and then 
or one week, and then he didn't even end up really playing in that game. I think if you do need help with wide receiver, like if you lost Santana Moss and you got some guys on bye this week, uh, there's a couple guys out there. Uh, Fred Davis, who's someone from Washington that is a tight, tight end, end that's out there. Uh, Michael Jenkins on Minnesota had a great game last week. Seems like he's a guy. Uh, Plaxico Burris might be available in your league. He might be a guy. Uh, so maybe you can find a wide receiver, but it's going to be tough at running back. It'll be, at the very least, an interesting week to look at the waiver wire because there's going to be a lot of teams that are hurting, so it'll be a lot of activity, I'd imagine. Yeah, th- this is not a week to sleep on waivers. And in Arizona, if Beanie Wells is going to miss time, uh, Lerod Stephen Howling is there. If he's not available in your Alfonso league anymore, Smith. Alfonso Smith. Yeah. The, Chester Taylor might maybe is even in the mix there. Uh, but there's not a lot of places to turn at this point of the season because people and you might not have a lot of dollars left. Yeah, you know if if you're in a league that you need to pay for these guys, you know with fantasy free agent dollars, you might not have much left, and uh, it's it's going to be tough and it's going to get tougher. A part of this part of this game, part of where luck comes in is of not being the team. Uh, that's injured. And if if you need a stopgap this week, another name that is probably available is Bernard Scott because this is that's the week. That's true. Yep. This is the week that uh, Cedric, Cedric Benson. Benson is going to have to sit. We stashed him in our uh, expert league. Right. The basically <laughs> for we this week. For three weeks. Right. But then the NFL reduced it. So he's down to two weeks. Okay. Uh, starts and sits. First with starts, I'm going to just let you know how I did last week. My starts where Freeman at quarterback, it would have been okay, but he threw four picks. So if you're in a league where interceptions are big minus, he was a horrible play. If you're in a league where interceptions weren't a big minus, he was just an okay play, kind of disappointing. I guess he's just kind of at the point of his career where he's real up and down. He played well against the Saints, played terrible last week, kind of disappointed me. Uh, My start at wide receiver was Brandon Marshall, nothing great there. I'd probably call that a complete miss. But my start at running back was DeMarco Murray. And, yeah. you know, I, wanna, I don't want to go crazy here, but DeMarco Murray is a guy I drafted in about four leagues. Stowed him away. Uh, started him in four leagues. He's also a guy that Dave Damashek mentioned way back yeah, when yeah. on this show as his number one sleeper. And he's a guy that I've been watching play football since he was 18 years old. Uh, he was not a big recruit. He played high school football at Las Vegas. Uh, and he was considered an athlete more than uh, associated with any position coming out of high school. And the reason he went to Oklahoma is because they were recruiting a linebacker named Ryan Reynolds, uh, who was also from the same high school in Las Vegas, and they ended up seeing Murray. And Murray just happened to be the all-time leading touchdown scorer at Oklahoma. You know, So uh, he's a guy that has uh, not – I mean, he may have come out of nowhere last week. Obviously, no one expected him to break Emmett Smith's record for the most yards ever in a game <laughs> right. by, a, by a Cowboy, but he's a guy who can ball. Yeah, and I mean, if I'm going to pat myself a little bit on the back too, I dropped – we talked about free agent dollars. I dropped over 40 free agent dollars out of 100 on him, not because I know his backstory as well as you, but because I know Felix Jones just isn't apparently that special a player. I mean, if he is, he hasn't shown it in all his years here, so – I thought there was a legit chance that here's a guy on an explosive offense that maybe can steal a job due to an injury. And, you know, I think if you look at Murray's first carry, obviously it was a 91-yard rush. Right. And obviously he's playing the 32-ranked defense against the run. That helps. 
But he kind of set the tone for the day. And that kind of play is what they've been waiting for Felix Jones for years now. And it's just kind of never come. I'd be shocked. Marco Murray in this game got 25 carries. I don't know the last time Felix Jones – I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that just it's not a Felix Jones-type game. Uh, he never gets those type of carries. And so, I mean, like you said, the first carry was a 91-yard touchdown. That helps to build that trust. But I'm not sure how much trust they ever had in Felix One Jones. One thing I will say about Murray, if he had a negative at OU, it was staying on the field. Yeah. Uh, he didn't play in the national championship game against Florida because he was injured. Right, and he spent. He definitely had an extra year because he missed one whole season. So, yeah, I mean, we outlined how many players are going to have that problem this week, though. So, right. if, if he's on your waiver wire, go out and get him with your first priority. Spend lots of dollars on him because he won't be there next week. Um, my sits last week, I had Matt Ryan, which was. Uh, good, pretty good. He had an he had an okay day. He vultured a touchdown from uh, the running back there, Turner. So that yeah, he had him. a rushing touchdown and he that had one him. passing touchdown. Yeah. Only threw for a little bit over two hundred yards. Had two picks. I also said Carson Palmer, but uh, he didn't start obviously. But he did look terrible. If that counts for anything, uh, Peyton Hillis. That was a bad call on my part, only because he didn't play. I. He was questionable, I think, leading up to the game, but I should have picked somebody else, so I apologize for that. My wide receiver, uh, Brandon Lloyd, did not play. He did. Brandon Lloyd did play. Yeah, he played for the Rams. Wow, okay. Yeah, he played. He was out there. Okay, I said Brandon Lloyd and all of the St. Louis receivers. Yeah, Brandon Lloyd played, and he stunk. Okay, and then in addition to – well, he had six catches for 74 yards. Okay, so that's not bad. So he had a decent day. Yeah. He had a decent day. My backup, in case Lloyd didn't play, was Vincent Jackson, which was actually the better call of the two. That was a good call. He got the Revis <laughs> treatment. He had targets, but only one, one catch. catch. So. so on to this week. Do you, um, do you want to start off with your first Sure. Start? I'll start out with my start at quarterback. It's Matt Hasselbeck. This is going to be a week where I think there's going to be a lot of quarterbacks going to score a lot of points. Yeah, a might, lot of nice matchups. You might have a quarterback that's better than this. Ben Roethlisberger, for example, is uh, facing the 32-ranked pass defense and you might easily have him and Hasselbeck in a league I'd still start uh, Roethlisberger there obviously but I don't want to say anything obvious if you need a guy if you have Aaron Rodgers if you have Josh Freeman uh, if you have Matt Ryan all those guys are on a bye if you need a guy Hasselbeck is probably available in some leagues still and he could easily be your backup he's got a great matchup against the Colts so if you need a guy Hasselbeck will probably be a good start this week against Indy my QB sit this week, um, it's not a one I like to make because it's my hometown Buffalo Bills, but Ryan Fitzpatrick. And this isn't a thought that he has a bad game necessarily, but like we just said, it looks like there's a lot of quarterbacks that are due to have big days, even considering guys like Rodgers, Freeman, and Ryan aren't going to play. I think there's still probably 10 or so guys I like better than Fitzpatrick. Washington, the one thing they do well is rush the passer and defend the pass. They're like the, uh, the 11th, 11th-ranked pass D. And I expect, uh, like I'll mention with Damon Hack, I, or maybe I mentioned it in the three things, but I expect the Bills to become more of a Fred Jackson-oriented team. Fitzpatrick, I think, will become a little more of a game manager. I don't expect him to go totally Trent Dilfer, but I think they're going to realize that to win more games, they're going to have to run the ball, um, and it's not going to be like the first two, three weeks of the season with Fitzpatrick throwing for crazy yards and touchdowns. So I think they're going to be more well-rounded, and I think it starts this week against Washington. 
My start at running back is Pierre Thomas for the Saints. Hmm. Pierre Thomas is a guy who has been getting more and more involved in the Saints offense. And that three-headed monster there is going to turn into a two-headed monster, I would think, for at least this week. Uh, the Saints have a big game in two weeks against Tampa Bay. So I would think that they would want to rest the bruised heel that Mark Ingram has when they play St. Louis, who is 32nd against the rush, yeah. and when we last saw them was getting <laughs> torched for 250 yards by DeMarco Murray. Pierre Thomas had a good game against the Colts last week. He got more and more involved in the offense. And if you give Graham's production – or I'm sorry, if you Ingram's. give Ingram's production to Thomas – you have a very, very nice fantasy day. So if Pierre Thomas is on your bench and you need a guy to start this week because you have one of the Packers guys or you have uh, Michael, Michael Turner, Turner yeah. uh, Pierre Thomas would be a good option for you. On the other side of the field, my sit this week is Steven Jackson. Steven Jackson's a talented guy. Uh, I don't believe the Saints ha- are exactly run stuffers, but I think their defense is good enough. And... This game's going to be over before it starts. Uh, Steven Jackson isn't known for being a guy that catches a ton of balls or anything. So, Only in his mouth. <laughs> this game, yeah, this game is going to be over before it starts, and that's never good for a running back. Uh, so, Steven Jackson, uh, you're, you're on my bench this week. I have no idea what he catches in his mouth. It was just a joke. <laughs> uh, my uh, starting wide receiver this week is actually a tight end. Uh, so I don't know if you're in a league where wide receivers and tight ends are treated the same or if you need to start a tight end. He's a guy who may or may not be available in your league. It's Fred Davis. It's a tight end at for Washington. The reason I like him this week, well, for one, Santana Moss is injured, so they can't throw to him. For two, the Bills have no pass rush, so he's not going to have to stay in and block. And the Bills traditionally, for the last few years, really struggled against tight ends. Always, yeah. And not to mention they're the 30th-ranked pass defense against the pass this year so fred davis is a guy who could have a very great day against the bills this week and uh it seems wide open for him i think that could be a high scoring game too or at the very least high scoring for buffalo so uh, they're going to be throwing all day um my wide receiver sit this week real obvious one uh too obvious one is all the denver wide receivers you don't want to start any denver wide receivers until further notice but the less obvious one i'm going to go with is deshaun jackson dallas like Washington is a team that's great at getting to the quarterback. Deshaun Jackson's a guy that's great at catching long passes. I think a lot of this game is going to be dump offs to guys like McCoy or to guys that are a little bit better at running underneath like Macklin or Avant. Uh, Deshaun Jackson, he's the type of guy that maybe he only needs two catches to have a big day, but I'm going to put him in my sit column this week. Okay, one last thing for Five on Fantasy today, and that's a quick update of our Sportscasters Listener Week. Don, I did what no one else could do. Finally. Finally, the Pittsburgh Feelers are no longer undefeated as I defeated them. This week, the final score was uh, 142.42 to 104.76. We kind of questioned last week whether or not uh, the Pittsburgh Feelers would be able to get through this week where they had many players on by, Welker, Bradshaw, McCoy, and they couldn't. Yeah, that's a tough week. So uh, my team was able to step up to the challenge, and now I'm facing a week this week in that league where buys are going to make it difficult for me to compete. 
because I have a ton of guys on buy. I have James Starks on a buy. I have Roddy White on a buy. I have Mercedes Lewis and uh, my other tight end, who is Jermaine Gresham. They're both on a buy, so I'm going to have to find a tight end somewhere. So I might have a difficult week this week. Uh, but as for the league in general, it seems like uh, Pittsburgh Feelers are still in first place in Don's division. Uh, Penn State second. And what you're talking about, Hillis, in the last playoff spot there, you're one game out, Don, tied with Klembeck. Avataris Jackson. You guys are tied. for. still like my team. I score a lot of points behind. when I lose. Uh, I am tied for first place with the Nova Scotia Nailers in my division. Uh, Gordon Fishsticks also tied for first place there. Three teams, four and three. And the Cardiac Cats and Manning up, kind of bringing up the rear with two and five and one and six. Seems like my division, the playoff teams might be set. (laughs) You know, it might be Nova Scotia Nailers, Backstage Pacers, and Gordon Fishsticks in the playoffs with Cardiac Cats and Manning up missing it. So that's a call out to uh, Cardiac Cats and Manning up. All right, that's it for Five on Fantasy this week. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with Damon Hack. Our next guest is from Los Angeles, California, and is a graduate of UCLA. He then went on to UC Berkeley, where he earned a master's degree in journalism. Professionally, has covered the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee and the New York Knicks for Newsday. He then moved on to cover golf and the NFL for the New York Times. Today, he is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated covering golf and the NFL. And hopefully, he doesn't drop the ball as much as fellow UCLA alum uh, MJD uh, (laughs) did last night. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great, kind, and talented Damon Hack. How are you doing today, Damon? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Thanks for that intro. Yeah, we're doing great. Uh, excited to talk to you as always. I think the last time we talked was just after week one. So quite a bit has happened uh, since then, obviously. Uh, but one thing that hasn't changed is that when we talked to you after week one, you had just watched the Jets play against the Cowboys. And as we talked to you after week seven, you had just watched the Jets play and this time against the Chargers. So... I guess before we get any further, uh, seven weeks into the season, where do the Jets stand compared to where they stand as you watch them opening day? Yeah, you know, they're coming off a really big win against the Chargers. I think there were a lot of questions about the Jets since that opening week one game when they had that great comeback against the Cowboys. When I you know, was finished watching that game, I felt like, okay, the Jets are on schedule. This is kind of the team we all expected, you know, back-to-back AFC title games uh, and starting off on the right foot with a big comeback. Mark Sanchez uh, and the Jets obviously aided by Tony Romo's mistakes taking that week one win. And then there I was at the game on Sunday against the Chargers team that took an 11-point lead, 21-10 at halftime, and the Jets again finding a way to come back and win a game. It showed me a lot of uh, resolve on this part of the Jets. They have not always been neat this season. They've really had 
trouble incorporating some of their offensive weapons, in particular Plaxico Burris, who's new to the team after a couple of years of incarceration. So it was impressive to see him break out for three touchdown catches from Mark Sanchez, all in the red zone, all a function of his great athleticism and height. Uh, seeing the Jets take advantage of that made me think, okay, they're starting to unlock some things on offense now, which will help with a pretty good defense um, and maybe make them kind of the team and the contender that's only the stuff they would be going into this season. You mentioned a couple of wins that wouldn't be the way you would think Jets wins would come. Like the Jets seem to be a team that you would think would be better when they're ahead. The defense you would think would be the strength. Sanchez has been kind of on and off. Do you think that the Jets are an example of a team, maybe more so anywhere in the league, where they've just taken the personality of their coach? You know, their coach has the kind, got the kind of attitude of just like never being out, never being beaten, always, you know, having a chance regardless of where they stand. He thinks they're going to win the Super Bowl. Is that how they're managed to come back? Is it more about attitude with them than maybe the way the team is built? Like a team like the Saints, you would think, oh, they're built to come from behind. A team like the Jets, you wouldn't think so, yet. They've done it two times against two very good teams this year. It's a great point, Steve. And, and to, to that point, you know, I was in a, a scrum with Ladanian Tomlinson last week. You know, talking to him about what's it like playing for Rex Ryan versus Norv Turner, and he said, "Listen, Norv's a an excellent coach. I enjoyed my time with him, but there's something about Rex who's able to get players to play better, maybe than even they should be able. You know, he has them playing above." their talent level above their means. He says it's a very special coach that's able to do that. He thinks Rex is unique in that way. And I think you're right. I think when you look on paper at the Jets' offense, the offensive line is not as good as it was last year. Obviously, the receiving core, losing Braylon Edwards, um, they bringing a guy off the street in Plaxico who hasn't played in two years. Mark Sanchez, still kind of an up-and-down quarterback, very young. You have a, a a raw Sean Green, an aging Ladanian Tomlinson, and they're able to come back and win that football game. I think attitude has a lot to do with why the Jets are, are over 500 at this point because they have not played very well this season in whole. But I tell you what, their coach believes in them, and those players believe in themselves as well. I think a lot of it has to do is attitudinally and, and belief in that locker room. The Chargers, on the other hand, have won some games early in the season, but those four wins are against teams who have a combined 4-17 and 17 record. Where do you feel like the, the Chargers stand in the time of the season where they usually start to put it together and go on a big run? Obviously, Antonio Gates returned to the lineup last week. That's going to be huge for them. Where do you see the Chargers as they go from here? I think the Chargers are kind of in the mix, but below, say, a New England um, I would say, say, a Baltimore, despite their strange loss to the Jacksonville Jaguars on Monday night. Um, Pittsburgh. He's, uh, one of my interesting things that I wrote a story on in the magazine this week uh, in, in SI off of that Chargers-Jets game is, are the Jets tough enough to beat an East Coast team? Are they tough enough to beat a, a Pittsburgh Steelers or a New York Jets or Baltimore Ravens in the postseason? And I'm not so sure. When you look at their stats historically, and even going all the way back to the AFL-NFL merger, 
They have not done well on the East Coast, and they have not done well in the postseason against kind of these rugged, snowbound teams. And here was a perfect example. I thought it was a great opportunity for the Chargers to kind of silence some critics about their toughness and, and how they match up with some of these rugged East Coast teams. And coming into the Jets' house and winning a football game would have been a big step for them. They weren't able to take it. So talented on both sides of the ball, but I just wonder, are we going to see the same Chargers team that we always see in January, the team that, you know, is racing to get to the postseason, ends up, you know, with a great record, gets a postseason spot, and then loses either on the East Coast or loses in their own building to a team from the East Coast. So, so what do they do? I mean, if you're, if you're the San Diego Chargers owner, I mean, this has been the story since Tomlinson's been was over there that they've always been a great statistical team, but just one that doesn't win really any big games. Yeah, I don't know what the Dean Spanos does. I mean, they they fired Marty Schottenheimer after a fourteen and two season in two thousand and six when they lost that home playoff game to the New England Patriots. When Marlon McCree has an interception, and if he falls down, he wins the game. But he tries to right. return the ball, <laughs> and then Troy Brown knocks the ball away, and the Patriots have life, and they go on and win the game. Uh, you got a fourth down call early in the game when a lot of people thought Marty Schottenheimer should have gone for a field goal fourth and like 10 or 11 from the 30 and they go for it and they they fail because a lot of people have been criticizing Marty Ball for being conservative and he kind of went outside of himself a little bit and went for a pretty daring fourth down call with a lot of yards to go so they got rid of Marty Schottenheimer who was a kind of a run first coach and you bring in you know a a kind of an air type of coach in in, uh, North Turner who's got some really good kismet with with his quarterback and Phillip Rivers. Rivers loves them, but they're more of a passing team now. They're trying to get some ground strength with Ryan Matthews and Mike Tolbert, but it's all about toughness. It's all about getting it done. There's something missing there. There's some, you know, fiber, some, you know, aspect of, of toughness or ability to close out games. I and mean, here's an example just on Sunday. You have an 11-point lead in, in the third quarter and you'll score another point the rest of the way. I don't know what it is specifically about this team that makes them struggle, but they can't seem to make that statement win that says, okay, the Chargers have arrived. One last thing about that game before we move on to all the other stories in the National Football League. Vincent Jackson got the Darrell Rivas treatment this week. He had, I think, eight targets, but only one catch. Are we really watching one of the all-time great corners in Revis like when you when you're there in person do you even look to that side of the field that Revis is on I mean is he to the point where just forget it he's so talented and and if you've watched cornerbacks through the years you know you bring up guys like obviously Deion Sanders who I saw play you know Champ Bailey and Charles Woodson of of recent vintage and and now you go to Darrell Revis who's really kind of that true shut down corner. I think there was a lot of sense that maybe he and Namdi Asamoah were pretty close, kind of 1A and 1B, but I think we've seen this season that Revis may be just even more unique than than, than Namdi is. He's just such an incredible physical player. To see him, you know, the ability to close on a receiver is amazing, but he goes up against a Brandon Marshall and he's able to, you know, jam him at the line of scrimmage and, and he's able to close on receivers in space. There's just so much, there's so many facets to his game as a defensive back. It's fun to watch. And even, you know, when he wasn't covering Vincent Jackson on the throw that Rivers had, 
that I think Cromarty was on him, the ball gets tipped, and there's Revis. I think that six or seven DBs in on the play with a great zone coverage by the Jets, and there's Revis, right place, right time, and takes the ball back to the house. He's just a very instinctive player. He works incredibly hard, and his physical gifts are, are apparent every Sunday. I think another thing we talked about after we had you on uh, last time was the incredible beating that Baltimore had put on Pittsburgh. Uh, here we are the day after just an absolutely embarrassing performance by Baltimore, and they find themselves technically in third place now in the AFC North with Pittsburgh at 5-2 and two and Cincinnati at 4-2 and two, uh, for whatever reason. Uh, must be conference record. Yep, 4-1 and one to 3-2 and two is why they're ahead of Baltimore technically in the division. Where does, it, where does Baltimore stand in your mind? I tell you what, you talk to a lot of people around the league, and they think that defensively this Ravens team is nearly as good as it was when they won the Super Bowl in the 2000 season, that they have some of that same nastiness and ability to shut out teams. And the one aspect that they're missing right now is is offensive continuity. You know, Joe Flacco is still a young quarterback. He's taking a lot of heat in the Baltimore area because a lot of people think he's the one – hindrance from them being able to overcome the Pittsburgh Steelers and make a real deep run in the postseason. And I talked to Joe during training camp, and he, he knows that the pressure is on him. He also realizes that he's got a lot of moving parts in that receiving core. You know, Todd Heap and Derek Mason, two kind of security blanket targets for him, are gone. They have two young tight ends. They go out and get Lee Evans from Buffalo. He can't even stay healthy and be on the field. So. Right now, I think Joe Flacco is having a lot of problems finding cohesion and kismet with the receiving core that includes Anquan Bolden, who uh, came over from Arizona a couple years ago, and also a young receiver in Torrey Smith. I just feel like Joe Flacco is lacking confidence right now in maybe the the, the targets that he has. And, and until he can take that next step, can become a Roethlisberger or become at least, uh, you know, on that level of those quarterbacks. You know, not, he doesn't have to be Drew Brees, in mind you, or Aaron Rodgers, but he has to be a quarterback who can get it done in the postseason. And to see him struggle on Monday night against the Jacksonville team that is pretty much dead with a rookie quarterback. I mean, Joe Flacco had trouble getting a first down. I don't think he had a first down in the first half. He's really, really struggling right now, and, and the heat on him in Baltimore is only going to increase. I'd have a two-part question uh, adding to that. If Flacco was terrible last night, I mean, it's hard to deny that, but what were the coaches doing making him throw the ball 40 times and having their best player in Ray Rice carry it eight times? It's a great question, and it's, it's weird because I guess the Jaguars probably you know presented them with a lot of different schemes that would kind of prevent Ray Rice from having the ability to run the football, but I, I agree, you still kind of have to ride your horse, you ride your best player, you get him the ball, whether it's through checkdowns or you try to schematically find some open space for him. And you're not the only one questioning that Terrell Suggs, they're great to blitzing a linebacker, was questioning the same thing and saying, you know, what is going on with our offense right now when, when arguably be our best player in Ray Rice is only touching the, the, the football a single digits. And that was the problem last night. It is a very kind of a slow, sloppy, dirty game. It was almost like the, the Ravens kind of went down to the Jaguars level. I mean, you knew that the Jaguars were not going to be able to put up a lot of points with uh, a rookie quarterback, but they expertly used their kicker, Josh Scobie, who was a weapon last yeah. night. Ooh, they were able game. to just make the, you know, right off the, the gate, 54-yard field goal to start. And the Jaguars, you know, hey, what, the Jack Del Rio gets a lot of flack. 
down there as he should. But that was a, if not a, a job-saving win, it was at least a season-defining win for the Jacksonville Jaguars when they try to you know, get their rookie quarterback up to speed. Okay, the second part to that question, uh, you, said, you mentioned how he lost a lot of weapons there in Baltimore and Lee Evans, Todd Heap, all those different, uh, Derek Mason. Any chance that they're the one team that maybe takes a chance on someone like T.O.? It's a great point and a great question. You know, T.O. was on his way to Baltimore before he went, ended up in Philadelphia a little these many years ago. Um, it'd be interesting to see. I think T.O. had his workout today. Yeah. No one no was one. Uh, there. No one even went. No scout, no GM or personnel director went. It was, it was televised, I want to say, so people could obviously monitor it and watch it. There's one team that I think could maybe do it or maybe a couple other teams that kind of have those strong personalities in the locker room. We saw Bryant McKinney come from Minnesota having weight problems and kind of a, a kind of a perception and a lack of focus. He went to college with, with Ray Lewis and, and, and Ed Reed, went to the same school, I should say, went to Miami, and he's lost 20 pounds and is playing a very solid left tackle position for, for, the, for the Baltimore Ravens right now. So that would be an interesting uh, acquisition for, for, for the Baltimore Ravens. They definitely need some sort of you know, jolt, some sort of shot in the arm offensively right now. But the one thing, if you take on a T.O., you're getting more than just the, the receiver. You're getting the whole circus, and that's going to be something that Ozzie Newsom and that uh, general manager and personnel staff will have to look at very closely. Are you surprised at how bad Indianapolis has been despite not having Peyton Manning? I mean, and as a kind of a part B, is Peyton Manning proving that he's the most valuable player in this league? <laughs> Or it'd be fun. It'd be fun to see if he actually could win it. You know, watch the Colts go one and fifteen or zero and sixteen, and there's been a kind of a, a little groundswell for for Peyton Manning as as the league MVP. But to answer your question, I am surprised. I'm surprised that they're playing so poorly that they can't win a game. We saw them kind of battling early on. They they had some close games, and you know, were in a lot of ball games, and they weren't able to pull it out at the end, but. To see what happened on Sunday night against the Saints, to sixty-two to seven, that's that's an early season college football score. Big conference against a little conference, you know. To see that kind of a disparity between two NFL teams was was mind-boggling. And I tell you what, the Colts for years, it's interesting when you ask, you know, the the common statement would be like, how could they not have a serviceable basketball these years? Well, a lot of those guys, a lot of those free agents said, look, why do I want to go someplace where I know I'm never going to play? Where Peyton Manning is never going to get hurt. Well, Peyton Manning got hurt, and the Colts are suffering for it. And, and Jim Caldwell, the head coach, has to wonder, you know, even though it's not his fault that the Colts can't win a game, if those scores continue to come in, you know, with that kind of disparity, you have to wonder how long they're going to keep them and how uh, the fan base will react with the Super Bowl coming to town in Indianapolis, and the yeah. Colts won't be anywhere near that football game. <laughs> Uh, I mentioned in the uh, open that I read for you that you spent some time covering the San Francisco 49ers for the Sacramento Bee. 5-1, and one, uh, running away with the NFC West. Second place is 2-4. and four. Probably, probably at this point, they probably only need to win three more games to make the playoffs the rest of the way. Uh, how surprised have you, have you been with the job that Jim Harbaugh has done there? Are you not surprised? 5-1, and one, unbelievable. No, I'm, I'm very surprised at the job that, uh, that Jim Harbaugh has done. I know his reputation was tremendous uh, in the Bay Area where he coached Stanford to such great success. There were still some, some questions about you know, how does it transition to the pro game. We've seen 
some college coaches do it well. We've seen the Jimmy Johnsons come aboard and, and continue to win, but we've also seen the Steve Spurriers come to the NFL and fail. And Jim Harbaugh is obviously part of the former group. He's come in. He's done a great job with Alex Smith. Uh, the playbook is a lot more simplified. Smith's confidence is growing. They have a good running back in Frank Gore, a, a wonderful tight end in Vernon Davis, who's a, a serious football player now, maybe the most underrated defensive player in the league, and Patrick Willis. This is a team with a lot of talent and a lot of confidence right now. And in that division, we have a lot of sloppy play with the Rams, the Arizona Cardinals, and, and Seattle Seahawks. The Niners are going to run away with that division. That, that, that's not, as you said, that, that division is basically won at this point. The question is, is can they actually make some noise in the postseason? Uh, it would be very difficult when you have teams like Green Bay and New Orleans, but maybe they win one football game, uh, and, and maybe they continue to get confidence, and you never know if they're like the St. Louis Rams of, of you know, 1999, coming out of nowhere and winning the Super Bowl. Um, this may be that kind of a team. It's definitely a confident football team, and Jim Harbaugh deserves a lion's share of the credit. Can anyone beat Green Bay? Can anyone beat Green Bay? That's that's the question. Can anyone beat Aaron Rodgers, who is getting better every week? And as good as he was last year, he's playing even better. His accuracy, his confidence, his comfort running that team, the, the whole Brett Favre saga behind him now. He is just a powerhouse who is so confident and, and so much in control. When you watch him play, he throws the ball that he knows is going to be caught by the right color jersey. It's, it's amazing to watch him play quarterback right now. And We talked about Peyton Manning earlier. And, and If I had a chance to see Peyton Manning this year, I would tell him that I miss watching him throw the football because it's something to behold. But Aaron Rodgers is kind of uh, sating that thing that I'm missing because Aaron Rodgers throws a beautiful football. It's a tight spiral. It's got a, a, a kick to it. it. It's got a beautiful arc to it. I mean, if you, if you are a connoisseur of watching great quarterback play, Aaron Rodgers is, is as good as it gets right now. And this is a team that's still hungry, and I like the fact that they have so many guys that were hurt last season that didn't get to share in that march to a title. You know, you bring back a Jernichael Finley, the tight end, and, and Ryan Grant, the running back. A lot of guys that wish they had been on, you know, that football field to, to defeat the Pittsburgh Steelers, so they're still hungry. I love the fact that they're playing like a team that hasn't won a Super Bowl, you know, eight, nine months ago. That They still want to go out and win another one. I just think that right now, if you look at the league when parity is the buzzword, they're, they're number one, and everybody else, I think, is a, is a distant second. You mentioned Favre. Uh, do you think, obviously, Rodgers doesn't have the body of work yet, but his pro- or Rodgers right now might could arguably be better than Favre in his prime, no? Yeah, I tell you what, it's, it's, it's hard to even believe that we'd be saying that a couple of years ago, but here he is, you know, possibly on the cusp of a second Super Bowl. You know, Brett Favre, you know, has one Super Bowl ring. You know, and he was probably going to go down as the greatest Green Bay quarterback of all time. And here we have to kind of, you know, take out the eraser and say maybe that's not going to be the case when when Aaron Rodgers' career is done. He's just he's getting better. He's he's young. He's athletic. He's everything Favre was, um, and more. And, you know, we don't know about the durability yet. That'll be one thing that'll be testing for him. But he's got a great arm. He can throw in bad weather. Uh, he's intelligent. Mobile. He's, the players love him in the locker room. This is Joe Montana handing the ball off to, to Steve Young, yeah. or possibly vice versa. You know, this is a, 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 a franchise that's going to be blessed with back-to-back Hall of Fame quarterbacks, and, and it's going to keep the Green Bay Packers competitive for another decade. 
and Packers fans can finally get over the fact that they uh, that dark day in franchise history when they traded away Aaron Brooks to the Saints. They can finally kind of get over that. Uh, the <laughs> absolutely, yeah. I think all's forgiven now. All all's been forgiven since that trade. The NFC East is a division where there's just the, the all the teams are somewhat polarizing, you know. And Washington got off to this great start. They've They've fallen back down to earth. I heard a Redskins fan say that they might go three and thirteen the hard way. I don't know if it's that bad, <laughs> but uh, the Eagles are a team that we thought would be a quote unquote dream team. They're sitting two and four. Uh, the Cowboys are have been up and down, up and down. They're three and three. I obviously had the great day from Demarco Murray, and the Giants are maybe emerging as the best team in that division. Four and two. Eli Manning is playing maybe the best football in his career. Do you think that this is the Giants' division to lose at this point? I really do. It's it's a bunched-up division, though, the NFC East. I agree with that assessment. It's hard to say who the real top dog is. It wouldn't completely shock me if the Eagles got their act together and somehow found their way to the top of the division. Obviously, they'll have to go out and win a lot of a lot of games. They have a very slender margin of error. But this Giants team, I live in New York, it's really fun to kind of see the, the up and down of that team. You know, there's almost like, okay, there's no way they're going to beat Buffalo when they beat Buffalo, but there's they definitely there's no way they're going to lose to Seattle. They lose to Seattle, and that kind of seems to be the Giants' way. That You know, just when you think they're about to take off and, and to rule the division, they have a bad loss, and just when you think Tom Coppins is about to step back on that hot seat, they, they win a, an excellent game against Buffalo. So this, to me, is a team that is, is, is probably the best team, if not on paper, to the best team, to the team that has a, a head coach who has a philosophy that the players are familiar with. And Eli Manning has been there. He's a Super Bowl winning quarterback. Despite his up and down play and 20 some odd interceptions last year, he's having one of his better seasons statistically this year and finding comfort with his receiving core. And they're getting some bodies back. Obviously, OC Manure missed the start of the year. And Brandon Jacobs has missed the last few games as, as well as Justin Tuck. But these are guys that have won the Super Bowl. This is a team that will be unafraid of any situation, whether it be in, on the road in Dallas or down in D.C. or, or anywhere. And I like that uh, about the team because they're very professional, very business-like, not a lot of headlines, especially when you compare it to their neighbor in the New York Jets. But the Giants are workmanlike and they get things done. Did the Eagles maybe make the mistake that the Redskins have made so many times and that's just being a little bit too aggressive in free agency and finding that they have all these parts that maybe don't quite fit together as well on the field as they do on paper? Why are the Eagles 2-4? and four? That's a great question. And I tell you, I was in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania during their incredible free agent bonanza, and, and you want to talk about a happy football team, and I mean organizationally. I talked to Andy Reid on the telephone. I got the team president. Joe Banner on the phone, and I saw the general manager, Howie Roseman, who who couldn't uh, smile any wider if he tried. I mean, this was a team that was so excited, and the city was so excited about the guys that they brought in, starting with Osamoa, and, you know, you bring in a Jason Babb and Colin Jenkins, you know, Dominic Rogers, Cromartie, and Vince Young, you know, blessing them as the dream team, and they had all these things that seem to be in their favor, and to see them fall on their face at the beginning of the year has been probably the story of football. It's been remarkable when you consider the talent they have, but it just shows 
It takes real football. It's a funny game. It's a team game. It's about cohesion. It's about guys getting along. You know, I talked to Howie Roseman at the beginning of the season. He said, you know what, when you, when you spend a lot in certain areas, you're going to have weaknesses. Other places, you just hope those weaknesses aren't, you know, the cause of, of some pain. And the offensive line has not played well. The linebacking core has not played well. And when you have all that pressure and all that money socked into a few studs that come from a different team, they're feeling extra pressure. Namdi hasn't played up to his, uh, his level of football so far this year. So I, I think you're seeing a team that, at least at the beginning, has been kind of uh, weighed down by the expectations. They look a little bit stiff and a little bit uncomfortable, you know, wearing this kind of preseason crown as, as the favorite to win the Super Bowl. The Sportscasters are here with Damon Hack from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, the Sports Illustrated iPad app. Uh, you can find him on Twitter. He's at SI underscore Damon Hack. Uh, just a couple more questions. One is the Detroit Lions and the Buffalo Bills are two teams, maybe in similar markets, that have struggled certainly the last 10 years to, I guess, make an understatement. And they both find themselves with two losses, one with five wins, one with four because of a bye. Uh, When you look at the Bills and the Lions, does either one of them stand out as maybe being in it more for the long run? Or do you think both these teams can be around in January and maybe get get themselves in a playoff game and build towards the future? Well, it's interesting. You know, both those teams have, have like you said, they've had uh, just a decade of just dismal football, and, and they've both come back in, in different ways. I mean, I, I visited Detroit a few years ago when, when Jim Schwartz was, the, was hired as the head coach, and, and he told me, he said, you know what, you'll be coming back here. You'll be coming back to see us. And I, I thought it was just a, it, it kind of was a window into his confidence that he would turn that franchise around. You know, he kind of he knows how, you know, the things we do at Sports Illustrated we often cover teams that are winning. We don't often do stories on, on losing teams unless they're like, you know, one and fifteen or zero and sixteen and you kind of like can't not you can't not look at them and you, it's impossible to look away. But I love that Jim Schwartz is saying, you know what, you'll be back here because we're gonna be good and, and they really are good. They've obviously stumbled the last couple of weeks but when you look at the youth on the team and Dominican Sue and, and Stafford and Calvin Johnson, I mean job at best, they have so many just good skilled players that can be the glue for a long time. I'll be interested to see kind of how they react. They've had a couple of notable losses, obviously the Jim Schwartz, Jim Harbaugh game, and then losing at home uh, to the Atlanta Falcons, where the, the offensive line of the Falcons accused the, the defense of the Lions of having right. some dirty tactics and, and things like that. So I'll be interested to see how they bounce back from that. And then you have the Bills with the Harvard quarterback who's kind of playing over his head, or maybe this is the level of play he's going to show for the rest of the year. For whatever reason, I find the Lions a little more legitimate. Um, the Bills have played some great games, but I wonder what's going to happen when they have that rematch against the Patriots. And I really want to see how they play in their two games against the New York Jets. That, to me, will show uh, if the Bills are for real or if they're going to kind of struggle and limp down the, the rest of the stretch. But that's going to be those three games are going to tell me a lot about whether the Bills are going to be built to last or if it was just kind of a, a wonderful first start, you know, and, and they're going to slowly come back to earth. Last thing, and I kind of asked Lee a similar question earlier about the World Series, but it works here as well. You're, you're a guy who uh, covers this league very thoroughly, very well, 
and you kind of watch it with a different eye than most of us. And what I mean by that is sometimes I would think that you would be watching this league looking for a story, you know, and, and, and kind of looking at it for, for certain things. As, as we progress here, we're about the halfway point. We're going to get to the halfway point in a week or so. Uh, what is it that you're looking to see develop that you think could be a feature in SI that you think is something that you could see spending an hour with a player or a team? What are some stories that you want to see how they develop in the next couple of weeks and possibly turn themselves into cover stories uh, for Sports Illustrated? You know, one of the things I'm really interested in seeing is, is how long the Green Bay Packers can keep this going. I'm just so impressed by a team that, that – that doesn't take a backward step. And, and what I mean by that is I talked to Dom Capers, the defensive coordinator, a couple of weeks ago for a story I did on scorecard on how defenses are adjusting to kind of the, the new rules of the game and, and the really heavy fines coming from the hits. And I asked Dom, almost as an aside, I said, are you guys ever going to lose again? And, and he kind of laughed. He said, you know what, we have a locker room of, of humble men they're humble and, and, and they're learners. And I just was so impressed by that. I'm thinking they're humble and they're learners, and, and they've already just, just won a Super Bowl five minutes ago. So I was just so impressed by that, of, of the quality of the guys in that locker room. And I just would, you know, we know about Aaron Rodgers, and, and I kind of would want to see, you know, go, go visit Green Bay and maybe talk to some other players and kind of see what is it about this team and this franchise that, you know, won Super Bowl One and Super Bowl Two, and all those championships with Vince Lombardi. It's really been a, a resurrection of, of maybe the greatest franchise in the NFL and maybe in all of sports, them or the New York Yankees, and, and how they're able to do this and, and stay so hungry and so humble coming off of a Super Bowl title. The Sportscasters here with Damon Hack from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find his work this week in the uh, magazine as he was at the Jets and Chargers game and look for some work in this week's magazine, which I believe has the uh, World Series on the cover. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it, and hopefully we can check in at least one more time as we get towards the playoffs and see where things go here uh, the rest of the way. Thank you very much for your time today, uh, Mr. Hack. Thank we you, appreciate Steve. it. Thank you. We'll talk I to you appreciate soon. appreciate it, Bill. Okay. Talk to you soon, buddy. Yep. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you to Damon Hack. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, good, both good guys. We just kind of jumped all over the place in the NFL with Damon Hack, but it went great, I thought. Uh, so thank you to Damon Hack and Lee Jenkins for being on the show today. Again, next week is episode number 49. We're going to have Andre Reed, Katie Baker, and Jane Levy. Um, also, episode 50 in two weeks with Mike Tirico. Uh, another reminder, I was on the No Two-Minute Warning podcast. It's www dot no number two minute warning dot com if you want to check that out don't forget to check us out on facebook where facebook.com slash the sportscasters you can find us on twitter we are at sports underscore casters or at don like sports or at diversity 23 uh, you can also find our blog the sportscasters dot blogspot dot com you can email us anytime at the sportscasters at gmail.com and you can find our website where all this information is listed, www.sports-casters.com. Okay, before we get to pick four, we are going to start 
the 12 Days in Christmas promotion. Ooh. If you are the first one to email me today and name the three starts that I had and the three sits that Don had, you will win a copy of Jane Levy's book, The Last Boy, the biography about Mickey Mantle in paperback. Can I email? You can. Ooh. <laughs> I got a leg up, I think. <laughs> Uh, no, you're not eligible. Okay. Uh, but Jane Levy's book, The Last Boy, is out there. First person to email me this week uh, with the list of my starts and Don sits from Five on Fantasy will win Jane Levy's book, The Lost Boy. Okay. Or The Last Boy. I'm sorry. All right. Pick four. Good week for me last week. Bad week for Don. Yeah. I went three and one. I won the Cardinals over the Rangers in game one of the World Series. That was a three to one score. Uh, I also won the Saints minus 14 over the Colts. I think I had that one all the way. Uh, the final was 62 to seven. You know, that's the most points that an NFL team has ever scored since the merger. 62. It's been done a few times. Really? The last time it was done, Dan Marino's final game, playoff game, Jacksonville and the Colts or the Dolphins. That was the last time someone scored 62. Uh, I also won LSU minus 22.5 over Auburn. Man, that team's just automatic. Yeah. 45 to 10. No sweating involved. My only loss was I had the Cardinals to upset the Steelers. They made a run at it, but not quite enough. I think the Beanie Wells injury really hurt. Changed the game plan there. They lost 32 to 20. My record is 83 and th- 82. Don is 81 and 86 after a one and three week where his only victory was the game of the week. The Cardinals over the Rangers, three to one. He lost Houston over Tennessee, minus three. That game was <laughs> 41 to seven. Yuck. He lost Baltimore, minus eight over Jacksonville. That game was 12 to seven. And he lost Detroit, minus 12, his bold prediction over Atlanta. Atlanta won that game outright, 23 to 16. The ugly week. Uh, let's, let's change that, though. This week, game of the week. Patriots at Steelers. That's a 415 game on CBS. Uh, a lot of people's Super Bowl picks at the beginning of the season. Uh, from the AFC, that is. The Pats are giving three points. So I'm going to take Pitt. I don't trust the Steelers. Uh, I like their offense more than their defense, which is a weird thing to say about them because they're known for being a kind of a smash mouth defensive wins championships type game. But I don't – and I know the Pats are terrible – pass defending but i just i don't trust the Steelers to stay with them and what should be a uh shootout a little bit so i'm going to take the pats minus three you know this is going to be it's on cbs so you got to figure it's going to be nansen sims there it's a late game four o'clock it's going to be probably broadcast 90 percent of the country you know i'm guessing cbs as the national doubleheader this week and this is their big game and it just seems like every time the patriots are in this spot the patriots went yeah so I'm going to take the Patriots minus three. I just realized the Bills are stupid. Bills are playing at four o'clock this week in uh, Toronto, and that of all the weeks when there's a nice nice four o'clock game that the, the, the Bills I'll be have to watch the Bills game. Anyway, uh, my host choice game this week. Before I even looked at the line uh, in the Saints versus Rams game, I said there's not a line big enough that's going to scare me away. Uh, the Saints are getting about the biggest line you're going to see a professional football team. I haven't seen it. Can I try to guess it? Sure. 17? Close. It's 16 right now. 16. I could see that going up toward the game. Uh, Especially, is Bradford going to play? I don't think so. Maybe. If Bradford doesn't play, I mean, I don't know. But I mean, 
there wasn't a line. If it said 20, I'd be taking the Saints in this game. So I'm going to take the Saints. That's a 1 p.m. game on Fox. All right, my host choice. I tried this once. It didn't work. I'm going to try it again. Hopefully Don and I together are going to watch <laughs> Sabres and the Panthers on Saturday. It depends if Don has to dress up like Mickey Mouse on Friday or Saturday. He's not sure. Uh, but uh, the Sabres are at home against the Panthers on Saturday night, October 29th at 7 o'clock. I'm going to take the Sabres to win that game at home. Sounds good. My worldwide leader game is the Sunday night football game, uh, Cowboys at the Eagles. Uh, I happen to be taking the three road, road teams here. Um, and you told me last week, you've heard before, only take the road team if you think they can win outright. I think they can win outright. I'm going to take the Cowboys plus four points on Sunday night. This is fun because I'm going to go the other way. Okay. I'm going to take the Eagles minus four against the Cowboys. The only reason I'm going to do this is because I think the Eagles are the more desperate team. They're coming off their bye week. Yeah, I don't like picking against teams coming off a bye. And they really need this game. They do. I mean, they really need this game. If they don't win this game, that could be it. That could put the nail on them. Yeah, two and five. That'd be tough. So I am going to take the Eagles simply out of desperation. So we'll see next week who is right there. My bold prediction kind of piggybacks on that last one. And part of the reason I think the Eagles can be beat is their horrendous run defense. I think DeMarco Murray is going to put up over 150 yards against the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> you have the same ah. number, too? All right. I did this before the show, before Don said anything. <laughs> I have written down here, DeMarco Murray will not get 250 yards this week, but he will get over 150 yards against the Eagles same on number Sunday too. Night Football. So although we're going head-to-head in the game, we are not – we are – on the same side with DeMarco Murray. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So we've said it before. we said it again. Sometimes when you've known someone since birth, you just think the same way. I guess so. Yep. Things. All right. Thank you again to Lee Jenkins. Thank you to Damon Hack. We're pumped up for the next couple of weeks. Make sure you join us next week for Andre Reid, Katie Baker, and Jane Levy. Two females. Yeah, that might be a first. That's definitely a first. We've had Katie and Jane on both right, once right. before, but separately. So definitely the first time where we've had three guests and two of them are female. Uh, I love you, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Cue the hip. Mr. Russ, watch out for bad drivers. (laughs) All right.